All right, good morning. It is uh, 8.07. Uh, more importantly, it's Friday, so uh, we dig on that. On our radio buddy out there joining us. Good morning to you, sir. Hey, how are you, Casey? How are you, Casey? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around something. So the, uh, the Hannah Jones story um, <laughs> and the 10-year offer that was never a 10-year offer or may have never existed in the first place, a story being driven largely by individuals who are part of a school of journalism at UNC, as I'm sitting here and I'm reading the very latest, may have almost, I don't want to say almost completely been made up, but the story and the controversy seems like it's mostly been made up, and it involves a bunch of people who want to teach other people how to do journalism. So break this down for me where your head's at on this thing. Well, it was someplace, and now just hearing you describe it like that, I'm curious. I may be missing a piece of information about why oh, it's made uh, up. I know it was done by some, like, intern at, like, NC Policy Watch, the lefty publication. So, I, I mean, I assume there were probably mistakes in it, as I usually do with NC Policy Watch's work. So uh, you may have information that I don't. No, 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 no. So I'm talking about now the assertion by the board chairman uh, that no tenure decision was was made, nor was tenure offered, because the spin that Policy Watch put on it, and I have it here, hang yeah. on, the spin that was put on by Policy Watch, let me read their initial tweet that blew this thing up, uh, special report, after conservative criticism, UNC backs down from offering a claimed journalist tenured position. Right. So the the impression that people are left with is that she was offered uh, the five-year the five-year contract, but also tenure, uh, which is a lifetime thing in the UNC system. And after evil uh, conservatives decided they were going to cancel her, <laughs> right. the board then decided that they weren't going to offer tenure after the so the offer was quote revoked. There was no offer, and there was an assertion that since she was a non, uh, she wasn't coming from academia. And it was traditional to offer her a contract. And then during the course of that contract, a consideration for tenure would have been made. So, so that's the part I say is made up. There was nothing to revoke because nothing was offered. Right. So so that is interesting because it says right here in the article by the intern. Oh, no, let me just confirm here that it is the yeah, it's the intern. So uh, instead, she will start uh, or sorry, the school changed its plan to offer her tenure which amounts to a career-long appointment. So very clearly, they've made the case here, the, the, the report here is that there was an offer and it got changed, and now it's going to be a five-year contract, which I just, I don't know who needs to hear this right now, but I feel like I need this, I need this to be said, which is you're not being canceled if you get offered the job with a five-year contract with the potential for a lifelong position that that's that's like the exact opposite of being canceled so she's not being canceled everybody now uh, whether or not she didn't uh, have this you know uh, a higher terminal degree like a doctorate or something and that's why they didn't offer it to her uh her supporters point out that other people who have gotten the, uh, these kinds of you know tenured positions through this um the night chair uh, this this grant funded program, some of them haven't had a, a doctoral uh, doctoral degrees either. So you know, is, is it unfair that she's being targeted, quote unquote, for not getting the tenured track? Uh, I don't know. I I have more questions about why you would offer somebody with her record. I mean, I understand that the people who love her think she's done fantastic work. 
But, you know, there have been some pretty solid criticisms of her work and what she has done with that 1619 project. Uh, some of the mistakes and then the stealth edits and then the denials that they that they made any edits like that. That's that's actually not good journalism. I don't know why you would want you know that to be the standard that you're trying to teach future journalists. Well, I guess I kind of do understand why they would want that to be the standard after all. Buried deep inside this story that Ariel ran is the following line, quote, some critics and historians say there are factual inaccuracies in her work, which which um, that's nice. But it's actually beyond that to the points you made. But also remember when they kind there was an acknowledgement from The New York Times and from Jones essentially saying, well, you're misunderstanding. We didn't str- we didn't we weren't saying that everything in here was 100 percent accurate. But this is how history feels or something along those lines. That's not just critics pointing things out. That's an acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that that's what should have been included in that line that is buried deep in this story. Right. The whitewashing of what they did at The New York Times with their the way they uh, first off, the the incorrect assertions, right, that were made as part of this project where they were talking about how the American Revolution was fought to protect slavery. And there's literally no evidence for that right so and and the the experts in the subject matter say this is not accurate and you need to fix this and then they first denied that it wasn't accurate they they refused to quote correct it and then they made stealth edits along the way and then uh stuff that got removed from the original piece she then denied ever having written those things that she wrote. So, again, I'm I'm not clear as to why you would want to hold that up as the journalistic standard, except uh, for political purposes. Like and, and so it, it it makes me chuckle when I hear people of the left and the journalism folks, they're all like, oh, this is political. Well, she's a political appointment. So I don't know why you're outraged. Like, oh, my gosh, there's gambling going on. Right, 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 right. And you know what? I could let me. I want to propose a compromise here. Oh, okay. Because you know, I'm again, I'm a, I'm a little peeved because I feel as though I may have been misled by <laughs> a bunch of people whose job is <laughs> it is to teach journalism. Um, I would propose that since she's not going to get the ten year, but still get the five year, she hold off accepting the five year till June, and then the state of North Carolina can pay her fifteen hundred dollars first <laughs> uh, for taking a job in the month of June. So go. we. We were just discussing. Yeah, we were just discussing this, and and um, there's a number, and I, I I like this number because I we've always kind of guesstimated a hard number that in the state of North Carolina, and you add in the federal subsidies and you average it out with what the average uh, person in North Carolina gets for unemployment. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's equivalent to a 40-hour work week receiving $12.38 an hour. All right, that's good. That's a number people can wrap their head around. Um, you know, another good incentive to go ahead and get back to work. Eating, eating, yeah. Um, putting clothes, yeah. Putting clothes on on the family. Um, I don't know. I find I find this a little insulting, but I also find myself going, "We got to do something," because I know a lot of like restaurant owners who are just dying on the vine, and their their employees that are at work are are killing themselves working these these crazy hours right now. And I want our economy to not fall victim to this. So. Uh, do you think that this is a possibility that this does, in fact, pass at those numbers and actually works? I'm not sure, because I saw there's actually a restaurateur in Asheville um, 
who was quoted in the local paper that opposed the idea. And she's hardly some, you know, right winger, um, as you know, I don't think anybody in Nashville is. And so uh, it's not it's not a universally accepted idea as a good idea is this is the way to get people back to work. Look, the government should not be competing with the private sector on wages. Okay, that's that's just fundamental uh, free market capitalism economics. You should understand that. And uh, the fact that so many people are proposing this idea as okay, like I've seen leftists defend uh, uh, this idea that, you know, people are staying out of work. And I understand it's a rational decision. If you can make more money not working, why would you work? Right. Um, And so I understand the rationality of the choice. But uh, government should not be in the position of trying of undercutting uh, people's uh, businesses and and getting people back to work because you know the government benefit. There's no room for advancement there, right? There are no career opportunities that afford themselves of you. You're not gaining experience by taking the unemployment money. You're just you're stagnating, and then you're going to have to do, you know explain why you have a you know, a one year gap in your resume after the pandemic ended. Right. So that, that's going to that's going to hamstring you as well when you go out into the job market. So uh, the people look, this is sort of a I look at this as a test run for the basic guaranteed income. I, that's that's what I'm looking at. And uh, this is an idea that economists have kind of kicked around. Milton Friedman was a proponent of it at one point. So I'm kind of curious to see what the inducements are and how people react to it. And sure enough, it looks like they're reacting as a lot of you know conservative economists predicted, which is they would stop working and you would have labor shortages, yeah. which I guess that's why we're importing all the people now is to fill the labor shortages, I guess. Well, the, the irony is that one, uh, two things. One, this is the best now easily, easily uh, brought up example of when government creates a problem and then steps into have to fix their own problem, <laughs> right. right? They did it with the expanded unemployment benefits, and now they're going to come in, and the, the proposal to a problem which involves them spending too much money is to spend more money, mm-hmm. and and that makes my head explode. But what equally makes my head explode is people who are say that we, we need to have a conversation, and they, their opening volley is if a business can't afford, it can't pay enough that people will come back to work, then they don't deserve to exist. Right. And I can't, I can't have a conversation with that person because that person is an idiot. Right. Um, and, you know, I'll be four years old for the purpose of this, but more importantly, if you really believe that and ignore all of the stuff that you just talked about and the reality of the situation, I, I can't tell if you're trolling or we're just that broken societally. Uh I think we're broken. I, I really like I, I think we are right now living through the product of a K-12 education that has been rotting for decades. That's and this is and this is what people were predicting. I mean, look, I've been in this business as long as you have right 20 years from from the very beginning. When I started in uh, media, this was the concern being raised by people on the right. This is the march through the institutions. And here we are. We like this is the destination that we've given them a couple generations of the kids, and this is where we are. And it's uh, you know it is idiocy reigns supreme now. Um, and you know I, I don't know the way forward. I'm hoping that Generation X, you know, the best generation ever. Um, that well, aside from the greatest generation, I should say, but the best one that's like remaining here. Um, Gen X, I think we're the only ones that could save the the country from the millennials and the Gen. Uh, Z and the Gen Y folks, but I'm not I'm not confident because we're Gen Xers and we're kind of a little slackers like that. So I'm not sure. <laughs> what did 
what did you let me jump let me great that was just filled with hope thank you Pete Callender. uh so let, let me touch on one other thing this week um I, did you watch the entire press conference of uh, the DA uh, Womble down there in uh, I did. Tank? Of course I and, did. Okay. All right. Other than it being wrought with uh, the inability to use uh, a slideshow program, um, <laughs> which is <laughs> 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 just the worst. Yeah. Just if you're going um, to do a, if you're going to do a presentation, I don't know, maybe have somebody there that can do the presentation, you know? <laughs> yeah. Especially when it's one that is look, it's an important presentation. Yeah, I thought Womble did a good. I thought Womble did a good job of laying out, and and there's a disconnect because people think that they're laying. He's laying out a justification. What he's doing is he's checking boxes, mm-hmm. and those boxes are this is what the law says. And now I look at the report the SBI brought me, and this this meets this, and this meets that, and here you know ipso facto this is why we, I, this is why I think this, and then. Where most people would be done, you and I know better than that. No, no, no. Always stick around for the Q&A. And the Q&A involved the uh, ever-present, why wouldn't you just let him go and pick him up later? Because then obviously, you know, he'll be happy about it. And why would you shoot at him when he's in a car? Why don't you shoot the tires out, which Mm. is the old, why don't you shoot him in the knee thing? And the amount of screaming lunacy among a handful of quote-unquote journalists in that room who were constantly, there was the one guy who got the first question, wouldn't shut up the whole time. He's like, he was trying to turn. What? Give me your two-minute rundown of what you thought was going on, how you think it went. And, of course, there's a giant lawsuit that just got filed. Of right. course there is. And, of course, there is, and they'll probably pay it. And that's the payday, right? Like, that's what's going to happen here. Look, the guy was a 30-year career criminal slinging all sorts of terrible drugs, and we're supposed to believe now that he didn't. This one time, he was just, you know, not attempting to resist arrest. He was not fleeing like all of the previous times he had done. So I guess the standard we're supposed to live by in a society like ours is that if you run from the cops, they don't pursue. Look, I'm not so sure that uh, he was actually trying to run them over. I really I'm not sure about that. Now, I do think that there was a cop in front. He was able to jump out of the way and it all happened very quickly. And had he not done that, that he would have been run over. I have no doubt about that. But what was his intent? I don't know. Nobody does. So everybody's projecting onto the situation, their priors, of course, because that's what we do. And so, uh, you know, if you see him as, you know, innocent man trying to flee, then it's like, why did they do this? Now, um, I, I thought you made a good point. They could have just shot the car out of his hands. Why not try that? I don't right. understand. Like, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. uh, you know, they're trained marksmen like that. Um, but no, the, he, he, he had an arrest warrant against him. They had a search warrant that included the vehicle. You don't get to just let the guy drive away with the evidence, right? Like, that's, and by the way, he made a controlled purchase or a sale, rather, to a, a, to a confidential informant undercover, right, that was laced with fentanyl. So, like, how many drugs has this guy been selling? How much has he been selling on the street that have killed people? Like, I'm, I'm genuinely curious, like, why do those lives not matter so much? Um, I, I, I don't know. Look, this is, it's a terrible situation. This is what happens when you have police go up against criminals. Bad things happen when people don't, you know, obey the commands to stop the car, get out of the car. And he did not. And if you resist arrest, generally speaking, bad things happen. That doesn't justify... Uh, you know, cops going off and murdering people. But I'm just saying, when you resist, things go sideways a lot more often than they don't. 
Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the one other thing, too, is because it comes down to state of mind is the thing. Mm-hmm. And and I think Womble did a good job of pointing out because he didn't do the interviews. The SBI did. Right. What are the officers thinking? You know, another thing, if I if there's a vehicle in, a, in and around me and it's moving or attempting to move at a decent rate of speed and it's not on pavement anymore. Remember, it's now they're on that grass dirt over there. The thing could spin around as any anyone who's watched a monster truck work understands exactly how that works or, or spun around in a gravel parking lot. Yeah. And, you know, all of these things are going to be going through your head. But as uh, as the D.A. pointed out, look, you don't even have to speculate. You just have to meet these certain requirements. Right. Here's the case law. And uh, that's what he laid out. All right. Pete Callender show dot com. Pete Callender show dot com. Um, and I, you know, I notice every Thursday you do a stream of consciousness. I see the the tweet on that so uh, people mm-hmm. should check that out and well that's uh, for the and, that that's uh, for the patrons you. only casey you, only the paying yeah, subscribers yeah, yeah. get access to me like that well that's not fair that is not just and uh, <laughs> i am a I free market capitalist stipend. <laughs> i'm yeah, a capitalist <laughs> all right all right pete i appreciate it man Thanks. and uh, everybody else hang on we'll be back 